The biblical holidays of the Jewish people have been observed for millennia, but they still have great spiritual significance for Christians. Today, I want to examine one holiday in particular, which will have great fulfillments in our future. The church has only really begun to discover the depths of this Jewish holiday, and it's called the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot in Hebrew. And while many fall harvest festivals in the UK and even the American holiday of Thanksgiving are inspired by it, the full meaning of the fall festival of booths, or Feast of Tabernacles, harvest festival of ingathering, is only now being prophetically appreciated by many believers. The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Dark. In Israel and in the Jewish world, Sukkot, the Fall Harvest Festival, is a time for out-and-out out celebration and absolute joy. In the Torah, in Deuteronomy 16:14, the Almighty says concerning this appointed week-long festival, you shall rejoice in your festival. That's an order. It's a commandment to rejoice. The word Sukkot is a plural Hebrew word that means little temporary shelters or sheds. And we first encounter the word in the book of Genesis. The name Sukkoth appears in a number of places as a location. In Genesis 33:17, after the patriarch Jacob returned to the promised land with his family and was reunited with his brother Esau, Jacob built a home for himself and made shelters called Sukkot for his livestock. The scripture says that's why the place was called Sukkot, because Jacob constructed sheds for his animals. And did you know, based on various clues in the New Testament, and no fact is recorded by accident in the Bible, scholars believe Jesus was actually born during Sukkot in the fall, not on the traditional date of December 25, so we should say Happy Sukkot during the Feast of Tabernacles and also Happy Christmas for many years as part of our movable Feast of Tabernacles celebrations in Israel. We took tour groups to Bethlehem where the Savior was born as part of the Tabernacles Festival. You see, according to John 1.14, Jesus came to tabernacle or dwell with mankind. And as an object lesson of humility, he was born in a shed of some sort, and his mother Mary used a lowly manger for his bed. Such a picture of humility and living outdoors in the wild, so to speak, or in a cave, was an important aspect of the holiday. Not being inside, but outdoors in temporary shelters. And joy is another key word to describe the festival of Sukkot. The angel of the Lord appeared in the shepherd's fields of Bethlehem with good news of great joy about the birth of the Savior. So foremost, the Torah describes Sukkot as a holiday of joy and gladness. In Deuteronomy 16, God says, you are to rejoice in your festivals for seven days. Keep it so that you will be altogether joyful. 
And the centerpiece of every sukkah is a banqueting table. Indeed, the spirit of the week-long holiday of family fellowship, feasting, and rejoicing, I would say, is Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 4. A beautiful verse that states, He brought me to his banqueting house, and his banner over me is love. So imagine a beautiful banner over your head with a word written by God's hand, Ahava, love. It's so amazing every year to see all the little sukkahs popping up everywhere on apartment balconies in Israel. And even the restaurants had their own sukkahs for the people to eat outdoors as they're commanded to do. After the Israelites had entered the promised land and began to live in houses, why would God ask them to return every year to live for a week in a flimsy hut like they dwelled in at Mount Sinai and like the tents in which they lived during their desert sojourning. Why? After all, these flimsy shelters are not physically very secure. And there's certainly no bomb shelter in a sukkah. Well, one reason God called for this activity of family camping is because he wanted the children of Israel to remember their desert pilgrimage and to remember all of his personal care for them. Remembering is such an important part of Jewish life. And you see, a sukkah is an object lesson. What or who is the true shelter of our lives? Well, the first Jew, Abram, was called Ha'ivri, the Hebrew, meaning one who has crossed over. And it was Abram's walk of faith that made him into a Hebrew. He forsook the comforts of his home in Ur of the Chaldees, to cross over to the promised land, to become a tent dweller, a sojourner with God. The sukkahs teach us that our security is not found in political power, nor behind the locked doors of our houses, but solely in the presence of God. Well, I wonder if you've seen the series about Jesus and his disciples called The Chosen. Well, it's not always theologically correct, I was delighted to see an episode in which Jesus and his disciples, along with his mother Mary and some of the female followers, decorated a sukkah. And there was a scene of all of them dining in the sukkah together, just as the Bible commands. I think I've seen almost all the movies about the life of Jesus, but The Chosen is the first that has included scenes of Jesus in a sukkah. And yet, of course... Jesus would have celebrated this great festival every year. And in fact, the Gospel of John teaches us that Yeshua, Jesus, celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I love this. The Aramaic word ushpazin refers to seven exalted biblical guests whom the Jews honor during the week-long festival of Sukkot. And namely, these are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, and King David. According to Jewish tradition, on each night, a different biblical guest enters the sukkah, and they are symbolically welcomed in a fashion similar to when families put out an Elijah's cup on the table during the Passover meal, and they set an empty chair at the table for Elijah. And the prophet Elijah, he really is prophetically expected to show up again in the last days. So says Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I will send the prophet Elijah to you 
before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. But during Sukkot, on the first night, Abraham is honored, and on the second night, Isaac, and so forth. I think it might be a good idea to honor Elijah again at this festival in the Sukkot, and also to invite Jesus, Yeshua, Israel's greatest native son, into the Sukkot, as some of the exalted guests, because after all, both Elijah and Jesus are predicted to return to Israel. It's fascinating that in the Gospel of John, chapter 7 and verse 10, Jesus went up to Jerusalem during the festival of tabernacles, and he went in secret during the middle of the festival. Perhaps on the fourth day, the day of Joseph, That's an intriguing speculation that I discovered at the Hebrew for Christians website. Since the biblical patriarch in the book of Genesis is a type in the Hebrew Bible of Messiah. In John 7, 14, Yeshua went to the temple and began teaching. And on the last great day of the feast, which is called Hoshana Rabbah, the high priest led a parade to the pool of Siloam to perform the water libation ritual to invoke God's blessing for rain in its proper time. And at that very moment, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Yes, that happened during Sukkot and the Lord coordinated it all. The roof of a sukkah must be partially open so that people can look up to heaven to contemplate the almighty to know our source of everything. It's important for Jews to get outside of their homes and to be reminded to look up to God and to contemplate Him. Furthermore, this new Jewish year is a year of faith. The Hebrew year number 5782 marks the beginning of what's known as a Shemitah year. That's a sabbatical year to let the land lie fallow, according to God's agricultural law in Leviticus chapter 25. The Shemitah is the seventh year in an agricultural cycle, and seven is God's number. The rabbis describe the Shemitah year as a year of faith. Religious farmers who farm by faith choose to allow their land to rest for the entire year, every seven years. The land itself has a Sabbath. Isn't that fascinating? And it makes sense, of course. Many Israeli farmers can testify of God's miraculous provision in past Shemitah years. For example, during the first Shemitah year that occurred after Israel's independence, and independence was in 1948, an agricultural settlement, a moshav founded by observant Jews, was one of the few that didn't work the land in the Shemitah year 1952. The faith of those Orthodox farmers was really tested because the timing of the finish of the Shemitah that year dictated that they had to wait until the month of November to sow their fields. By contrast, the surrounding secular farmers had all sown their fields in September in anticipation of the September rains. However, that year no rain fell during September or October. And in November... The farmers who had kept the Shemitah sowed their fields, and the very next day, the heavens opened. A few months later, the result was clear for all to see. The secular farmers had a lackluster crop, but the religious farmers enjoyed a miraculous 
bumper harvest. So today, many farmers in Israel are keeping the Shemitah. And that calls for rejoicing because the secular state of Israel is increasingly returning to the Almighty and keeping His ways. And the Shemitah is just one example. But getting back to the aspect of joy, theologically, how can God command people to be joyful in the midst of this world's danger and chaos? Well, what does Nehemiah 8.10 affirm? The joy of the Lord is your strength. So if God commands joy, supernatural, what I call divine joy, is something more than elation or fleeting pleasure. Joy is a decision to believe in life, to believe in healing, despite appearances and circumstances. The great rabbi, the apostle Paul, taught in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Paul didn't say rejoice when you feel like it. He said rejoice in the Lord always. I want to tell you something. This really preaches one of my heroes of the faith, Watchman Nee, died in a Chinese communist prison in 1972. He was very influential in my spiritual life. I read all of his books I could get my hands on. And it was through a fellowship in Richmond, Virginia, who had associations with the great Chinese apostle Watchman Nee, that I met one of my prayer mentors, Lance Lambert of Blessed Memory. Although Watchman Nee died in a Chinese prison camp, he had remained faithful to the end. In his letter sent to family, he wasn't permitted to write about the Lord due to censorship. But in one of his letters, he wrote, I maintain my joy. You see, joy is an attitude when we live in the Lord's presence. I learned that joy is not automatic, but it can be maintained. So the deep joy of Sukkot is the joy of faith believing that darkness is overcome by light, that truth defends itself and evil will be overturned. We find joy as we choose to believe in the reality of God's sheltering love and divine presence. The sages say that the sukkah symbolizes the clouds of glory that surrounded the Israelites' encampments in the desert. Therefore, the sukkah is also a symbol of the Shekinah, the divine presence. Now in Leviticus 23, God said, I am the Lord, your God. You shall dwell in booths for seven days that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So we're amazed by the number of Christians who started to celebrate these appointed times. If it's a perpetual command for the Jewish people to live in booths for a week. Why are so many Christians in our lifetime keeping this festival? We're not trying to become Jews. We celebrate Sukkot because it's a dress rehearsal for the millennial rule of King Messiah. In fact, the prophet Zechariah prophesied that all nations will come up to Jerusalem to worship the king. Listen to Zechariah Chapter 14 and verse 16. Then all the survivors from the nations that come up against Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. 
You see, we have to get on God's calendar. From the very beginning, God has had his own calendar, and it's very different from our calendar. But during the millennium, we're going to be keeping these festivals. For example, even God's days don't start at midnight. That's an entirely arbitrary human invention. In the Bible, God's days begin at sunset. At sunrise, we may wake up and say, oh, a new day has begun. But God is always way ahead of us. The day began hours ago, actually at midnight. And there are certain days throughout the year that God has set aside as particularly special. These are his Moedim, his appointed times. We've seen God do big things during his appointed times, but even most Christians don't yet understand this biblical timeline that is being played out in history. Just look at the history and ministry of Jesus. God's appointed times in the spring foreshadowed his ministry. Jesus died at Passover as the Lamb of God. He was entombed just in time for the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He rose from the dead on Bikurim, the festival of first fruits. The Holy Spirit was poured out on Shavuot, what we call Pentecost. The appointed times in the spring are prophetic shadows, pictures fulfilled down to the smallest detail by the first coming of Jesus. No other faith on earth has fulfilled specific prophecies of Jewish holidays. And just as the appointed times in the spring were fulfilled by the first coming of Jesus, so will God's appointed festivals in the fall be fulfilled with his second coming. We just have to keep our eyes on Israel because Israel is the center of the last days. Israel and Iran are so close to military conflict, which could suddenly erupt. We're moving into very chaotic times, and most people will be absolutely blindsided by the events that are coming as described in the book of Revelation. Global events are moving at a pace that's absolutely breathtaking. Emergency food companies have intensified. But the Bible foretold all of these things in advance so that we could be watchmen. Since the days of World War II and the defeat of Nazism, Israel and the world once again are threatened with perilous times. A big influential rabbi in New York, Moshe Wolfson, held an emergency gathering in his community for prayer about tensions with Iran. Rabbi Wolfson spoke to his followers saying that the sages warned that Persia, Iran, would try to destroy the entire world and the Jews would be in a difficult situation. And he asked, why are we quiet? Where is the awakening? Why are people apathetic? Why is everyone consumed with silly and unimportant things? Don't we hear the alarm? Don't we know that we must break open the gates of heaven and ask God for mercy? The rabbi said in the coming weeks, we face a total war in Iran and the nation of Israel must prepare spiritually. And if we fail to pray, the situation only gets worse. The rabbi compared Iran's president to the villain Haman in the scroll of Esther, who wanted to kill all the Jews. But the rabbi said God will perform miracles in the days and weeks ahead. Since the Holocaust, God has already done great miracles for the Jews, especially in the land of Israel, which now hosts most of the world's Jews. I say Iran has blasphemed the God of Israel. I was reading in Isaiah chapter 37 how in the day of King Hezekiah, 
They came to Isaiah saying the Assyrian king had mocked Israel and their God. And the prophet Isaiah said, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid. The king of Assyria has blasphemed me. While all of this is going on, it's amazing that it's a new day for Jews and Christians. Rabbi Shlomo Riskin, the chief rabbi of Ephrat, said he believes that we've witnessed a religious or historic revolution after 2,000 years of Christianity, calling the ever-growing and strengthening alliances between Jews and Christians a spiritual earthquake. We invited a Holocaust survivor to the Israeli night during the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem's Feast of Tabernacles a few years ago. This man's whole life was a miracle. He escaped the Nazi Holocaust as a young boy and arrived in Israel at age 14 with a dreaded disease of TB, but immediately he went and fought in the War of Independence. And miraculously, he came out of the war totally healed of tuberculosis. Hallelujah. Well, he began to weep as he watched all of us praising God and standing up for Israel. He was more than amazed. He said, we Christians who support Israel should all be given Israeli citizenship. Our times call for a close and extraordinary alliance between Jews and Christians. We can say with David to the Goliaths threatening Israel's existence, you come against Israel with sword and spear and javelin and an arsenal of modern missiles, flotillas, nuclear threats. But we come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you are defying. You and I possess David's secret weapon, which wasn't his slingshot. David's secret weapon was the name of the God of the armies of heaven, whom Satan is defying. David took down Goliath with that principle of Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. God also says, I will bless those who bless Israel, and I will curse nations and individuals who curse Israel. God says, I will vindicate my holy name. And because Israel are my covenant people, and they represent the Almighty. Increasingly, there will be animosity and war against Israel. But when the nations see the Lord's sovereign power delivering Israel from destruction, the nations will also turn to the God of Israel. It will become increasingly obvious that the Lord dwells in Zion and protects his people in the midst of a sea of hostility. And after a time of apostasy and judgment to prove hearts and nations, the Lord, Yeshua, will return to the Mount of Olives and during his promised thousand-year rule from Jerusalem, he will receive both the Jewish and Gentile peoples. They will come up to Jerusalem to honor his name and worship the king. So when we celebrate Sukkot, we're actually saying prophetically, praise awaits you, O Lord, in Zion. And Zechariah chapter 14 warns that nations who refuse to send representatives to worship the king during the millennium, will suffer the consequences. So even now, God is preparing a great changeover of government on this earth. Nations will no longer be headquartered in the UN in New York City, thank God. Those days are numbered. Jerusalem is the capital of the coming king. So we pray for the peace of Jerusalem and for Israel like never before.
We want to help them, shelter them with our prayers, love and protect them with our faith. Sinister forces, anti-Semitism will continue to arise, but we stand firm on the Lord's side, on the right side of history, because soon nations will come and pay tribute to King Messiah. And Israel will be the chief of nations, the head and not the tail. It's not about politics. It's about the battle of the ages. It's about truth as revealed in this Bible. A brave priest, Father Gabriel Nadaf, a Greek Orthodox priest from Nazareth, defended the Jewish state before the UN Human Rights Council. He argued that Israel is the only Middle Eastern country where Christians are not persecuted. He implored the 47 member nations to end what he called their witch hunt of Israel, the only truly free country in the region. Well, recently we set up a tent during the Feast of Tabernacles for a fellowship meal and held a prophetic summons in one of Britain's historic picturesque castles. Both tents and castles are idioms of God's presence. The Lord is our stronghold. He is our high tower. He is the rock. The Torah portion that week happened to be Deuteronomy 32, mentioning the title of the Almighty as the rock. And also in the Haftorah, the prophetic portion that week in 2 Samuel, God is called Israel's rock, solid, unmovable, reliable. What a wonderful picture of our God. We live in temporary tents of flesh, but he is our immovable rock. At Sukkot, we can remember that our physical bodies are temporary dwellings, just like Sukkot, and that we will have permanent and immortal bodies in eternity. Also, Jerusalem is described as an immovable rock. Zechariah 12.3 decrees that all who try to move and tamper with the status of Jerusalem will be injured. King David wrote, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and may the God of my salvation be exalted. In these times when our hearts are often overwhelmed, we bless the Lord for being the rock higher than ourselves, for being our shelter and high tower. Although our world is shaking the Lord is our refuge and strength, always helping us in time of trouble. Thank you, God Almighty. You are the unshakable shaker, and we put our trust only in you. And I thank God that Israel's Declaration of Independence includes the phrase, placing our trust in the rock of Israel. Amen. Well, the times are changing, the church age is winding up, and we need to concentrate on what God has called us to do and not get sidetracked. With aid from the Holy Spirit, we can address alarming matters in prayer, such as Iran's threat against Israel as watchmen. It's an ancient custom to recite Psalm 27 each day from the first of the month of Elul through to the last great day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And Psalm 27 declares no fear, even in the face of war. Verse 5, King David affirmed God would literally hide him in his tabernacle. Literally, it says sukkah in Hebrew and elevate him upon the rock. I hope as a result of these programs, you see the need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. 
you can contact me for our free newsletter at our website, exploits.tv. Let's connect on social media and download our free Jerusalem Channel mobile app to watch our videos on your phones or tablets. Until next time, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you shalom. I'm Christine Dark. Maranatha.